Awesome, awesome. Thanks, Dan and team. Uh, let me invite the kids to go back with our team of workers in Transformation Station this morning. They're going to have a great time down there celebrating Easter while us adults and older kids get to hang out up here. Well, uh, let me welcome you to Redemption Hill Church and say Happy Easter to everyone. Uh, so glad that you're here today. So, uh, yes, yeah, plenty to clap about and celebrate. Um, let's, um, let's do this. Let's give it up. If, if you're new at Redemption Hill, we're so thankful that you join us on this special Sunday. So let's give it up for all of our first-time guests today who are able to make it. Really grateful that you were able to come. And uh, as Pastor John said in the welcome, and perhaps if some of you are walking in during that time and missed it, uh, we have a Connect card that everyone received. We'd love for you to fill that out. At some point, we've asked a question on the back that we're really interested in getting some responses uh, today, and uh, there's also some opportunities to, to respond uh, to how maybe God's working in your life uh, today as well. So uh, if you have your Bible, please open up to the Gospel of Matthew. We'll be in chapter 16 this morning, studying verses 1 through 4. So if you're using one of these Bibles that we provide for you, it's page 821. And if you don't own a Bible or if you just like a new Bible, uh, please take this as a gift from Redemption Hill. We would love for you to walk out of here uh, just with an, a simple gift from us um, so that you can read the Bible for yourself uh, through the week. Well, um, I am really, really thankful for what God has done in our church over these past uh, six years. There are so many different reasons that I could uh, present to you to point to the awesome work of God over these past six years, but really it all boils down to the people that God has brought here and how he's changing each one of our lives day by day because we believe that God changes people and then he uses those people that he's changing to go out and to change the world. So if you are just starting a journey with us or this is a continuation of a journey with Redemption Hill, we hope that you will find that to be a reality in your everyday life as God works and changes you. Well, I don't know about you, but as I think about Easter weekend, uh, I can think back just to some awesome memories as a kid. I think Easter weekend can serve as a great memory maker in our lives. So uh, I don't know about you, but for me, I enjoyed as a kid waking up on Easter Sunday and, of course, looking into, you know, like coming out of my bedroom and then going into the living room and seeing uh, if there was anything in that Easter basket that I had left out the night before. That was always fun for me. And then I can remember going to church with my family each and every Easter Sunday. And by the way, we hope that today is a memory maker for you as you've been able to come to Redemption Hill. And then also, uh, you know, we would often go to my grandparents' home after church and then, you know, do the Easter egg hunt with my cousins, right? So you would fill up the Easter basket with as many eggs as you could find, right? Not, not as, as, as many kids were involved in that as our Medford extravaganza yesterday, by the way. So uh, there were about 400 kids that showed up out there. And uh, by the way, let's give it up for Kara and her awesome team that put that on for the city of Medford. Uh, we probably had about 800 to 900 people behind the Andrews Middle School yesterday, participating in that free event that we uh, threw for our city. So that was, that was really an awesome time. But do you have memories like this? 
the great food that you share with family, or perhaps the, the Easter photo that uh, everyone just loves to take, right? I mean, isn't it funny how uh, not only kids sometimes don't want their picture taken, but even adults don't like it sometimes too, you know what I'm saying? Like my hair doesn't look right now, the wind's messed it up. And so, you know, we just, we all have these moments that we can look back and reflect on in our experiences of Easter. But as we think about what Easter really represents, as we think about what God was doing on that first Easter morning, we come to something that is much, much greater than we can dare to imagine. We come to something that is so spectacular and so world-altering that we would be making a big mistake if we just rushed over it and not consider the depths of what God has done for us on that first Easter morning. And so today I want to try to help us do that by looking at a passage from the Gospel of Matthew that's going to wrap up our Overcome series by telling us that we can not only, these, these symbols on the, on the, the, the sermon series graphics, um, we can not only overcome hypocrisy, just talking a good game but not living it out. And we can not only overcome the brokenness in our lives, we can not only overcome the desires that ultimately don't fulfill us, but we can also overcome death through the resurrection and the death and resurrection of Jesus. And so that's what Matthew chapter 16 is going to help us out with. So if you would, follow along as I read these verses for us. This is what Matthew writes. And the Pharisees and Sadducees came, and to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. He answered them, when it is evening, you say, it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. This morning, I want to frame this text by asking two questions, all right? Those two questions are going to guide our thoughts as we work our way through these verses, and I hope that you will reflect on them for yourself and consider where you stand in light of these questions and in light of the story of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So the first question I want to ask you is this, is simply this, how do you approach Jesus? We have the story of these religious leaders and these political leaders known as the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and they were approaching Jesus in a particular way. And so as we look at how they approach Jesus, I think we should ask, how do we approach Jesus in our everyday lives? You see, what's interesting about the Pharisees and the Sadducees is that they were two groups of people that did not always see eye to eye. In fact, when it came to theological concerns or political concerns, they really could not have been more divergent. It would have been like Yankees fans and Orioles fans combining their forces together just to hate on the Red Sox. You know what I'm saying? So it's like 
They hate us because they ain't us. They don't really like each other, but they just dislike us more than they dislike one another. And so that's what's really going on here is that these groups of people are combining to confront and oppose Jesus. Now, how do they do this? Well, they ask for him to perform a miraculous sign, a sign from heaven. And they did this, that Matthew says, uh, they did it to test him, which tips us off to the fact that they weren't really looking sincerely for a sign from heaven. They were looking for something that they could show that, hey, Jesus isn't who he says he is, and we, we want to see him take the fall um, because they were threatened by Jesus, right? They were threatened by his rising popularity. They were threatened by the fact that many of the people that used to kind of side with them and believe what they believed and lived how they lived were now living like Jesus and following him. And so they came to him to ask for this miraculous sign. Now, here's the irony that's going on, all right? Jesus had been performing sign after sign after sign after sign. We saw this last week. The blind were receiving sight. The lame people were walking. The deaf people were hearing. Even people that were without food were fed by Jesus in a miraculous way, up to 4,000 of them from just a few loaves of bread. And so what's happening here is that They are wanting a spectacular sign from heaven, but they're wanting it on demand. They want to trip Jesus up in hopes that they can take him down. And so, as one scholar said, it's not so much a request as it is an excuse. People want signs that God exists and that Jesus is Lord, but they always want their sign not the ones that God has already provided. And so what Jesus does is he exposes the insincerity that's going on in their hearts. He turns the table on them, and instead of giving them a sign, he actually says, hey, look, you are coming at me with insincere motives, and I'm just going to go ahead and call that out. So if, if you look back with me in verses 2 and 3, he says what? Um, he answered, when it is evening, you say it will be fair weather for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be stormy today for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. And then look what he says in verse 4. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. I mean, Jesus was completely loving in everything that he said and did, but Jesus was also completely truthful. And so Jesus says, look, you are coming to me asking for a sign, but you're coming with evil motives. He's saying, look, you're you're trying to test me. You're trying to trip me up, and you're not going to receive a sign today because you are not coming in a way that is honoring to God or honoring to me. To say that the Pharisees and the Sadducees were evil is to say that they had deviated from God's plan, that they had sought to take control of their lives, and instead of living God's way, they went and lived their own way. You see, it's not just the heinous acts that we see on the other side of the world in Syria with Assad 
gas bombing his own people that constitutes evil, although that is wicked and evil. But it is also the evil that creeps up in our own lives when it comes to maybe the the self-righteousness that we possess, like the Pharisees, by the way. They were a group that said, look at me, look how religious I am, look at how moral I am, look how much I pray. And they were trusting in their own works versus trusting in the grace of God and the power of God to infuse their lives. Or you have the Sadducees who were a very self-indulgent people. They uh, just lived it up and, and lived the high life, and they didn't really care about the moral commands of God. And you see that both groups of people have missed the mark of God's design. And because of this, when we see that we do have not just evil around us, but evil within us, the reality is this, that we are actually what Jesus says in that second word, we're adulterous. You see, the amazing thing to me about God is not just that God exists and He's powerful and He created everything and that we could ever you know, see or experience in the world, but that God desires to have a relationship with every single one of us. And instead of welcoming that relationship, we all have turned away from that relationship. And we said, you know what, God, I'm going to do my own way and and I'm going to live my own way. And we chase after these things that ultimately don't satisfy us by elevating them higher than we elevate God in our lives. That's the essence of idolatry. And that is why Jesus would call us adulterous, is that we have forsaken our first, who should be our first love, our first relationship being God himself. And so Jesus exposes this, this false motive in their heart. And I hope, you, I hope you see what's going on here. You see, sin deceives us. The reality of sin in our life deceives us and it prohibits us from seeing what is right in front of us. We don't see the work of God. We don't see what he's doing because our hearts have been hardened to his work that is often right in front of us. And so what Jesus is saying here is, look, he's saying people don't believe in the signs that they should be seeing because they don't want to believe. And maybe that's you here this morning. You've never truly trusted Christ with your life. You've never truly went all in with God's plan and he's revealed it through Jesus because really at the end of the day, it's not the intellectual stumbling blocks that it is, you know, can be at times, but it's really just the fact that you want to continue living your life the way that you want to live it. And so I would ask you to, to ask this question, how are you approaching Jesus? Are you approaching him with proper motives? I mean, we all tend to demand signs from God at times, right? We've all prayed prayers. God, if you would heal this person, then I'll be devoted to you the rest of my life. Or God, if you will allow the patriots to complete this epic comeback, then you know, I'll do whatever you say that you want me to do. Did anybody pray that prayer like in the early fourth quarter of this Super Bowl? Just just saying. You know, maybe you're here today because you prayed that prayer. I don't know. Um, but but we see these these false motives creeping up. And so I love what Jesus does. He, he calls their bluff and he indicts their insincerity. He does it by saying, look, um, you can interpret the weather. 
right? You, you, can, you, you can see like the sky is red in the morning. Hey, it's going to be a nice day or it's red and threatening. Hey, the storm is on the horizon. Sailors today still have these kind of maxims or proverbs, red skies at night, sailors delight. Red skies in the morning, sailors warning. I mean, I'm no Glosterman, but I can understand that, right? It's like you, you, you see the, the, the signs of the sky, and you can see what's on the horizon. And Jesus says, hey, you're good at that, but you can't interpret the signs of the times. And what he means by that, and that was like a drop-the-mic kind of statement to these, these uh, supposed religious and political leaders. What he's saying is, the work of God is happening right before your eyes, and you don't have eyes to see it. You're missing what God is doing right before your eyes. The dawning of the kingdom of God was being revealed in Jesus. We have statements in the the Gospels that would say, when Jesus taught, he taught like no one had ever taught before. He taught with authority. He taught with persuasion and conviction. He taught the very words of God. When Jesus performed these miraculous works, he was giving little pictures of what the coming kingdom of God would be like when there is no one that would ever suffer like we suffer in this life. And so Jesus says, look, I'm doing all these things right before your eyes and you don't have eyes to see because you're approaching me in the wrong way. And so on this Easter Sunday, I hope that we will consider how we're approaching God. Are we approaching God in such a way that displays humility or pride? Are we approaching God in such a way that says, like, God, if you are there and you are real, then I want to do whatever it takes to live my life in light of who you are and help others see who you are? Or are we going through life as like, man, you might be there, but I don't really care about you, and I'm just going to do my own thing. I might get to you a little later in my life, you know, but but, but right now, I'm just going to do my own thing. How do you approach Jesus? This is the first question we should ask ourselves this morning. But then the second question is this. Have you embraced the climactic work of Jesus? I love where Jesus goes in verse 4. He he refuses, like, he refuses to play their games, right? He's like, hey, you're asking for this on demand. You're not going to get it. But I tell you what, I will give you a sign. A sign is coming And it will be the sign of Jonah. And when Jesus says this, he is pointing to what would be the most comprehensive and revolutionary climactic sign that he could ever perform. And to understand that sign of Jonah, we need to be familiar with the story of Jonah. So let me back up and explain to you what's going on when Jesus says the sign of Jonah. You see, Jonah was an Old Testament prophet. That means he was a spokesperson for God to declare the message of God to people so that they would know who God is and know how God would want them to live their life. And so Jonah was given an assignment by God to go to these despicable people who lived in Nineveh who had They were just a brutal people who tortured other nations, and they did not 
in any respect from a human perspective deserve mercy or kindness, but God says, hey, look, I want to be gracious to these people, so you go and proclaim my message to them because I want them to turn back to me. And you know what Jonah does? He says, you know what, God, Uh, I'm going to have none of that. I am going to sail not to Nineveh, but I'm going to sail to Tarshish, which was on the opposite side of the map. I mean, parents, how do you feel when you tell your kid, hey, don't eat that Skittle, and then boom, it's just right there. I mean, it's just... We, I mean, not that that happened in our house this weekend, um, but, but maybe you can identify with that. I mean, that's what Jonah is doing with God. He's just doing the exact opposite of what he has asked him to do. But through a series of events, Jonah was thrown overboard into the sea, and he was then swallowed by a great fish and stayed in the belly of that fish for three days and three nights, until finally that fish vomited Jonah up onto dry land. Jonah got the message, and he went to Nineveh and proclaimed that message that God told him to share with the people of Nineveh. That's the story of Jonah, a story that is crazy and amazing and kind of shocking to our modern ears, and yet Jesus clearly believes that is historically accurate. And I'm just saying, like, if God can create the world and cause people to rise from the dead, he can cause a great fish to swallow a person and not kill them and spit them out, right? So that's the story of Jonah. But to get the full effect of why this story translates into a sign, we need to back up a few chapters in Matthew because there was another episode where Jesus was confronted by a group of religious leaders, and they're asking him the same question. Hey, why don't you show us a sign? If you are who you say you are, why don't you show us a sign? And so Jesus says in Matthew chapter 12, it says this, some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Does that sound familiar? Absolutely, same as chapter 16. But in Matthew chapter 12, Jesus' words continue, and this is what he says. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Did you see what Jesus hoped they would see. Did you catch what Jesus is trying to tell them with this parallel of the sign of Jonah? Just as Jonah was in the belly of that great fish for three days and three nights, Jesus is saying, so will I be laid in a tomb for three days signifying his coming death and signifying his future resurrection because he would, like Jonah, be released from that near defeat. That is the sign of Jonah, how that Jonah pictures forth Jesus in his 
climactic work. Now, some of you who are very astute and know the timeline of Jesus' crucifixion to resurrection may say, well, Tanner, why would Jesus say three days and three nights when we know he was crucified and died roughly at 3 p.m. on Friday afternoon, and then he rose early on Sunday morning? That's only roughly 36 hours. Is Jesus wrong here? Why does he say three days and three nights? There's a very easy answer. In Jewish thought, one part of the day constituted the whole. Simple as that. So any part of the day constituted the whole, and that's why Jesus can say three days and three nights, but only roughly spend 36 hours in a Jewish tomb outside of Jerusalem. So let's break down this sign of Jonah, because this is what Good Friday and Easter weekend and Easter morning is all about, okay? First, the sign of Jonah communicates the near defeat of Jesus in death. The death of Christ is climactic because it is in the death of Christ that Jesus accomplishes our salvation through being our substitute, dying in our place, I just want to explain this to you from a couple of verses in the Bible. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, describes the death of Christ in this way. It says this, For our sake He, and He is speaking of God the Father, made Him, speaking of Jesus, God the Son, to be sin who knew no sin. So what that's saying is that Jesus not only amazingly took on our sin, our past, present, and future sin, and took on the full penalty for that sin on the cross, but he did so as a perfectly innocent sufferer because he had never done anything wrong. He had never done anything to deserve the wages of sin, which is death, but he took it in our place on that Roman cross. And why did he do it? For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him, in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. What this means is that now because of what Christ did by taking the sin of Tanner, like, hey, you might not think that like pastors sin. I'm just going to tell you every pastor sins, all right? I've sinned a lot in my life, and I'm going to continue to sin. I'm not perfect. That's why we need God's grace, right? So Jesus took all of my sin on the cross, and he absolved the judgment of God that I deserve for my sin that separated me from him. So that now, when God looks at me, I am righteous in his sight. That means that I have a right standing. I have been acquitted of the guilt that I deserve because of my sinfulness. This is the gift that God offers us through the cross of Jesus Christ. That though our sins have been stacked against us and we deserve death and there's no way out of that predicament other than the death-defeating death of Jesus Christ. You say, Tanner, why would God do that? Why would he make his own son suffer innocently in your place and in my place? 
And probably the most famous verse in the Bible sums it up, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. That means for all of us who would look to Jesus and believe in him, and that word believe doesn't just mean like intellectually sign off, yeah, Jesus died on the cross, but it means that it's personal, right? That I needed him to die for me, and I'm trusting in the work that he did that I can never do. I mean, one of the best explanations I've ever heard of the gospel so succinctly is this. Jesus lived the life that I should have lived, and he died the death that I should have died so that now I can have life through his death. And God did it all because he loves you and me. You may feel like you're unlovable, and you may not receive a lot of love from your friends, your family, your coworkers, your neighbors, but let me tell you something. God loves you. God loves you enough to send his son to this world to die on a cross for you so that you could experience life abundantly now and life forever with him. That's the good news of Easter weekend. That is the good news of the sign of Jonah. It was not a defeat. It was the near defeat of Jesus in death. But as you know, the story doesn't end there. The sign of Jonah also tells us that Jesus victoriously rose from the grave, defeating death. So let let me be clear here. Christianity rises and falls on the resurrection of Jesus. If we don't have the resurrection of Jesus, another author, Paul, who wrote Corinthians, would say in another place, look, our faith is futile. We're still in our sins. We can do whatever we want because it doesn't really matter. At the end of the day, when we die, that's it, and it's over, said, and done. But because Jesus did rise, then we can have all the hope in the world that this life matters, and so does the one to come. And listen, I don't have time Unfortunately, I don't have time today to give you all kinds of arguments for the validity of the resurrection, but I'll give you just a few thoughts, okay? Number one, there was an empty tomb. If the tomb wasn't empty and they could go find Jesus' bones, these people would have been highly motivated to squash the movement that Jesus' disciples had started by telling people Jesus rose from the dead. Secondly, all of the major theories, like if you doubt the resurrection, just take a closer look. All of the major theories against the resurrection don't hold weight. So there's one called the swoon theory that says Jesus didn't really die, but he just appeared to be dead. And then when he was laid in the tomb, he came to and he walked out of there uh, alive. Well, the problem with that is that Roman soldiers were professional killers, and I'm pretty sure they did a good job of making sure Jesus was dead. So you have historical evidence, but you also have biblical evidence. You have the fact that the Old Testament predicted the Messiah would suffer. Uh, Go read Psalm uh, Isaiah 53, that he would suffer and rise from the dead. Women, by the way, were the first witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus. The fact that that matters is because in the first century, women would not even uh, had a credible testimony in the court of law. Why would would they make this stuff up? Paul would say in another place, Jesus appeared to over 500 people, most of whom are still alive. What does he mean by that? Like, they're still alive. Just go ask them if they did not see Jesus bodily raised from the dead after his death. 
And then, of course, you have the transformation of the disciples. Jesus' closest followers were hiding away in fear, and then they become so convinced that Jesus was alive that they don't only tell that to thousands of people, but they die a martyr's death because they knew it to be true. There's plenty of evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. But here's the catch. You can believe that today. Like you can even like say, you know what? I, I, I wasn't sure uh, what Tanner just said. It makes it more plausible. I might end up believing Jesus rose from the dead, but you know what? You can believe all that and it not make a personal difference in your life. Because at the end of the day, we all have to say, you know what? Jesus not only died for me, but Jesus rose from the grave for me. And so I can tell you today that I trust in Jesus because he died for me and he rose again for me. And the resurrection makes absolute difference in my life. It changes everything in my life, and I would even argue in this world that we live in. So let me just give you three reasons, three quick reasons why I so firmly believe in the reality of Easter and why I'm eternally grateful for that first Easter. Okay, just check this out. When Jesus overcame death, he guaranteed that all brokenness will will be healed. He guaranteed all brokenness will be healed. You see, the way that we want life to be, the way that we want things to go, it's the way that God designed it in the very beginning, and it is the way that God will see to it that this world ends up where we will be in a place for those that trust in Jesus and dwell eternally with God, we will be in a place where the final book in the Bible says, look, there's no more sickness, there's no more pain, there's no more hunger, there's no more hurting, there's no more relational strife. All brokenness will be healed because of what Jesus has done in his death and resurrection. Then number two, I love this, our good works have eternal significance. Everything that we do in this life matters to God, and every good thing that we do, listen, is not only empowered by what Christ has done, but it actually points to the fact that this coming kingdom is on its way. So when we give a cup of cold water to someone that is thirsty, we are pointing them to the coming kingdom where there will be no one who thirsts. When we seek restoration with a friend that we've had conflict with, with, we are pointing to the coming kingdom where there is no relational strife whatsoever between God or between man. This is the hope that we have because of the resurrection. And then finally, the resurrection guarantees that death lost and life has won. Whoever believes and trusts in Jesus not only experiences abundant life now, but they experience eternal life with God forever. Jesus says, because I live, you will also live. And so I love the words of N.T. Wright when he says this. We might hear someone say they are just a shadow of their former self, someone that's, that's old in age and maybe on the verge of death, and they say, look, you're just a shadow of your former self. But N.T. Wright says this, the resurrection 
makes it the exact opposite. We are now just a shadow of our future selves. There is a real, glorious, astonishing you that will be your resurrection body. And so I want to ask you this morning, have you embraced the climactic work of Jesus and his death and resurrection? Have you accepted these world-altering and life-changing realities that Jesus died and rose to bring you? This morning, you can take a step today. And, and we deeply believe at Redemption Hill. You can see it here on this card, on the very back, this Connect with RHC card. Steps change stories. There's just a question here. Would you like to take a next step? For some of you, you might say, look, I'm pretty new to Christianity. I'm new to the story of Jesus. I'd like some more time to think about this. I'd even like some help in exploring. Listen, in a very no-pressure, casual way, we set up conversations. We have groups that explore the life of Jesus and what he means for us. Look, we, we know we can't make anyone believe anything. We just present the truth, and God has to convince you that it's true. But perhaps you would say, look, I want to explore more about Jesus and Christianity. And some of you might say, you know what? I want to commit to following Jesus with my life today. I believe what he's done for me is personal. And I want to accept his gift in his death. And I want to accept his gift in his resurrection. And so if that's you today, if you see your need for God, then let us know that by saying, hey, I'm committing. I want to go all in with Jesus and experience this transformation that you're talking about today. If that's you, would you let us know that? Maybe perhaps some of you would say, I'd love to pray that, that this power that Jesus gives us would be more of a reality for me every single day of my life. However we can serve you, however we can pray for you, I pray that God would move you to take that step so that your story can look more like the story of Jesus now and for eternity. Let's pray together. Father, we are so grateful for what you have done for us in Christ. And we pray that you would move us, not to just celebrate the story of Easter on Easter Sunday, but God, it's my prayer that through these stumbling words from a guy who's known you for quite some time, that you would give life to these friends who sit before me today. Whether for the first time or whether for uh, just a continuing story in their life of accepting the gift and the work of Jesus, God, I pray that you would move us to take steps and that as we take those steps, God, that you would change our story. God, I pray that you would show us our need for you and that we would step into the life that you died to bring us and rose to bring us. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.